title for today's sermon is, Are You Unaware? And it's taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. We're in Luke right now. We've just studied the resurrection. And now we're going to be looking at the two men on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to be finishing off Luke in about three weeks, I believe. Two weeks, three weeks. And then we'll be heading into the book of Hosea to do a study of the minor prophets. I trust you're looking forward to that as much as I am. I've never really spent a lot of time in the book of Hosea. I would guess you probably haven't either, but we're going to. So if you'd like to prepare for it by reading it now, that would be great. Let's ask God to guide and direct our thoughts as we look into his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessings of life to live and move in this world as your disciple. Help us, Father, to keep your priorities ours. Help our character to grow in Christ-likeness. Help this, Father, this sermon that is delivered this morning to be an impetus for that in all our lives, including mine. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Fifty-seven years ago, in 1957... An Air Force lieutenant named David Steves was flying high over the California Sierra Mountains when his Lockheed T-33A shooting star trainer began to experience serious mechanical problems. He was forced to eject from the aircraft, and he found himself being dropped into the snow-covered mountains of the aforementioned Sierras. He was in this God-forsaken wilderness for 54 long days. When he emerged out of the cold and the ice, he told an unbelievable story of survival. He claimed that he survived by eating wild berries and drinking from frozen streams. He allegedly slept in snow caves to avoid the 40-degree below zero temperatures and even worse wind chills. After 30 days, the Air Force gave up its exhaustive search and declared him to be officially dead. But then two months after the incident, he appeared out of the wilderness quite alive and in good condition. The Air Force, of course, put him through a debriefing process in which a crack investigative team searched for the truth. They then sent a large contingent of men into the area where he claimed his downed aircraft crashed, but to no avail. The search failed to turn up the wreckage or any indication that he ever traveled in the mountains he said he did. The Air Force came to the conclusion that he perpetrated perpetrated a hoax, possibly to sell the plane to the Russians. As quickly and as quietly as possible, the government forced Steves to resign his commission and he lived out the rest of his life under a cloud of suspicion. His wife divorced him, He lost visitation rights to his child, and he eventually went bankrupt trying to defend himself. But then 30 years later, in 1977, a Boy Scout troop, which was on one of those wilderness adventure camps, discovered the missing cockpit cover from his plane, validating his story. However, it was way too late for Steve's, because he died already in 1965. He died, can you guess it, in a plane crash. Still, his tale of survival was truly an amazing one. 
So how did this man, untrained in wilderness survival skills, survive two months in the hellish cold mountain conditions? Whiteouts, temperatures 40 degrees below zero, no winter clothing, not any food or water? No one knows. Just an amazing story. But there's even a more spectacular survival story told that doesn't take place in the Sierra Mountains or in the African jungle, not even in the Australian outback. This fantastic event took place 2,000 years ago in the land of Israel. The story of survival was highly disputed at the time it was told as well. It is the tale of a man who walked out of the Judean wilderness making wild predictions like he would be murdered and then rise from the dead three days later. A lot of people found that story really hard to accept and believe. And several years passed before his enemies did, in fact, execute him, and he was buried and indeed did rise from the grave, just as he said. Still, his story of survival is doubted by many today because there's no evidence of a cockpit. Maybe you're one of those who are skeptical of Jesus' claims. Now, I understand that people come to church for a variety of reasons. Some are here to please a family member, mother, wife, someone else. Or simply they come because they like church music. Some have come out of curiosity, others to investigate religion. I don't know why you're here today, but I'm glad that you've come. So it's my hope to challenge you to not doubt any longer, or at least to think more deeply about this survival story that is told by Jesus in the Bible. Here's my bottom line. The resurrection story, the resurrection event, is central to Christianity, for on it rests the veracity of all our belief. If the resurrection is not true, then we are of men most miserable, for we will still be lost in our sins." The pillar of truth, the resurrection, if knocked over, all the rest of our house of theological cards must collapse. Well, I want to thank the Lord for an uncompromising witness in the scriptures. Over and over again, we are told that his tomb was empty on that Sunday morning. The truth is, Jesus did die, and that he was buried, and that he did conquer sin, death, and the grave. The question is, how do we prove it? Can we prove it? Well, I believe that if we were in a court of law, we would bring forth eyewitnesses and reliable evidence that would be intended to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, or beyond a reasonable doubt, I should say, that Jesus did rise from the dead. Did you know that Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he rose from the dead? A miraculous survival story that is validated by many witnesses and by much evidence. Evidence that I believe is overwhelming. The historical record is filled with evidence that should convince any honest person that would come in and inspect these facts and these witnesses that Jesus did, in fact, come out of the tomb alive. So I'd like to examine a portion of the record this morning that testifies to his resurrection. That record was recorded by Dr. Luke in the gospel with his name upon it, and we shall consider his evidence this morning found in Luke chapter 24, verse 13 we will begin with. 
If you'd like to use the Pew Bible, if you haven't brought one with you, you can find our text on page 1056 of the Pew Bible. And uh, Luke introduces us to this evidence uh, by way of the Damask or Emmaus Road experience by using the resurrection event as the way to introduce that. So let me read these verses preliminarily for you before we get into the Emmaus Road experience, which is verses 1 through 12 of the same chapter. We looked at this last week, but I'd like to remind you of it. So just sit back, buckle your belts, and listen as I read. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel, and as the women were terrified and bowed down their faces to the ground, these two men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, also the other women who were with them and telling these things to the apostles. And these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at that which had happened. Here in these 12 verses, we find the gospel of grace encapsulated for us in the words of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I want you to note that the death of Christ was in and of itself in no way miraculous. Many men have died cruel deaths throughout human history, just like he did. In fact, many died cruel deaths before he lived, and they have died them up to this present day. We only need to consider pictures of the gruesome deaths of people at the hands of ISIS, or the Islamic State, as they cut off the heads of innocent individuals, all for the sake of the religion of peace. Now, let me be clear about this. No one is saved by Christ's death. After all, a myriad of religious leaders have come and gone and died in the past. I'm sure you've heard of many of them, many of their names, luminaries in that constellation of religious leaders like Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, Mohammed, Maharishi Yoga, L. Ron Hubbard, Charles Taz Russell, just to name a few. All of them died. All of them were buried. And all of them are still in their graves. All of these religious leaders are nothing but a bag of bones. But not Jesus. No grave could hold him. No tomb could contain him. For he is alive. Have you ever noticed the way some people wear crucifixes around their necks? Many of them still have a figure of Jesus hanging on the cross. In the past, I visited many homes of people who have images on the walls of their homes with Jesus on the cross. 
I believe these kind of images glorify the death of Jesus. And while I understand that it's symbolic of some people's faith, I believe it stops short of the truth that every, every believer should know and embrace. And that is, Jesus is not still on the cross, as this is a bodiless cross here, but he has disappeared, he is left, because the tomb was empty. A much better symbol for Christianity, then, I believe, is the open tomb, don't you think? As I've already stated, many religious leaders died for their beliefs, some in very gruesome ways, including Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, who was brutalized by a band of thugs before he died. But the big difference between such false religious leaders and Jesus is simply this. As I said, Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave, rising from it. But he was able to defeat sin. He was able to defeat death. He was able to conquer those by rising from the dead, thus proving who he is and who he said he was. When the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, but his grave clothes were still there. Nothing else. So when the women showed up on that Sunday morning to anoint his dead corpse with those spices meant to keep the smell of a decaying body down, all they found was two angels in his place and the grave clothes. Years ago, there was a Muslim believer who was devoted to Muhammad's memory, and he wanted to impress the local missionary that had come from the United States how his religion was superior over Christianity. So he offered the missionary this challenge. He said, when we go to Mecca, we find a coffin. But when you Christians go to Jerusalem, your Mecca, you find nothing but an empty tomb. The missionary said, stop there, right there, just for a moment. You're right. And therein lies the difference between Islam and Christianity. Muhammad is indeed dead and in his coffin. And all other religious systems, leaders, and philosophers are in their coffins. But Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And his tomb is empty. The empty tomb, you see, validates the truth of Christianity. The empty tomb validates the truth of Christianity. It assures us that the work of salvation by Jesus Christ has been completed and that we do have hope beyond the grave. So now let us turn our attention to the conversation that these two men on the road to Emmaus had about these events that are so important to us in Christendom. What's ironic about all of this is that these two men were followers of Jesus and that they completely missed the point of these events. These men went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover, as all men were required to do by the law, but they also went to be there with Jesus, whom they thought was the promised Messiah. You see, they were fully aware of all the things that were taking place. They knew Christ. They, they were there for these crucial events, and they understood who Jesus was as the Nazarene. But then these three fateful days happened and all of their dreams and hopes were crushed. And as they walked home on that fateful afternoon, walking in the hot Judean sun, they showed just how mixed up and distressed they were over these events. It had been an agonizing week, not only for them, but for all of Judaism, all of those who were in Jerusalem on that day. 
For many of them pinned their hopes and dreams on Jesus. He was, in their minds, the long-expected Messiah. But now, in their minds, he was dead. These men had heard or observed firsthand the death of Christ, his arrest, his crucifixion, and his passion. They left discouraged and confused and made their way home on the first day of the week. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you're a bit confused about who Jesus is. Maybe you're just like these two men on the road to Emmaus, disillusioned with God, disillusioned with Jesus in the Bible. You ask questions like, who was Jesus? Why isn't he just another dead religious founder? How could he really be the son of God, as he claimed? Maybe you're like those in the culture around us who have rejected wider those in the culture who have rejected religion and organized religion in particular. So maybe you've tired of all the God talk that takes place in the culture. You can't tell who is right and who is wrong. Maybe you're a skeptic. Well, let me say right off the bat, I sympathize with you. It is difficult ferreting through all the messages that are coming our way. So I don't want to have just another debate over the truth of Christianity and why it's superior to other faiths or religions. What I'm asking you to do is just to participate in the conversation between two men who were as skeptical and doubtful as you might be. For they were traveling down a similar road to you that led to truth. And I hope it happens for you this morning. Look with me at verse 13 of Luke chapter 24, page 1056. And we read, And behold, two of them were going that very day to the village of Emmaus, which was, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Here we find the immediate destination of these two men was the village of Emmaus. A little burg, just seven miles outside of the city. Not very far to travel by car, maybe 20 minutes. But if you're walking that seven miles with all the dips, turns, and hills, it turns into a half a mile or half a day's walk. That means they had several hours along the way to discuss the experiences they just had during the Passover. You know, discussions seem to be a problem today with people, don't they? Conversations, they always seem to turn into debates. And most people you can't even get into the debate with. People don't have time, it seems, to talk about the deeper meaning of life. They're too busy with the things of life to actually talk about that which matters. You know, there's always another rerun of NCIS to watch. But no time to really dwell on one's eternal destiny. Well, these guys didn't have TV or radio or iPods to take away their focus from life, and so they spend these hours on the road discussing. And we read in verse 14 that they were conversing with each other about these things which had taken place. This was more than just a casual conversation about the current events of the day. You know, let's talk about Ebola, let's talk about ISIS, let's talk about the midterm elections. No, these guys were talking about what the meaning of life is. They were having a debate over the meaning of Jesus Christ and what they witnessed in Jerusalem those past three days. What did it mean to them personally? 
It becomes even more problematic, though, when a stranger approaches them from behind. Apparently, he was moving more rapidly than they, and he caught up with them. You know, the truth is, you never know who is going to come into your life, you know? Uh, Charlene likes to call these things a God thing, right, Charlene? <laughs> a divine appointment. One of, those, one of those things in life when you never know is going to happen. And uh, so they're walking along, and all of a sudden, somebody joins them on their journey. It came about as they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself, Jesus himself approached and began to travel with them. Wow. I've never had an experience like that, have you? I've met a lot of strange people in life. Had some strange occurrences and experiences in life, but I've never met the living Lord Jesus. Well, he joins their group, and we're going to learn that they don't recognize him right off the bat. It's obvious from their conversation that's going to take place that they, and had been taking place, that they didn't believe. They didn't believe that he had risen from the dead. In fact, uh, that would make Jesus the very last person they would expect to bump into on the road home. They believed he was dead. They were disillusioned. So, as they're walking along, we must interpret this meeting with Jesus as not being accidental, but must be something that was intended by God to teach us today. This isn't just an accidental meeting, but it is under the providence of God that these men come together. And... I believe the Lord planned this all out so that Luke would include this event in his record for us to look at this morning. We read this editorial comment by Luke in verse 16 when it says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So they're walking along, the three of them, and they don't know it's Jesus. For God, I assume, had put a veil over their eyes so that they wouldn't recognize him. Now, they knew Jesus personally. They were his disciples. They had probably heard him speak on numerous times, so they should have recognized him, but they didn't because God wouldn't allow it. So we can say, in a, in a way, Jesus is traveling incognito. He had a resurrected body, but he was concealing his appearance from them for a reason. Now, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus was able in his resurrected body to appear, to disappear, to walk through walls, to travel through time and space with no problem. And in verse 17, Jesus is in that body when he asks, What are the words which you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still. They stopped dead in their tracks and looking sad, they looked at him. Jesus asked them about the events of the Passion Week like he didn't know. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Remember, this is the Lord of creation. He knows everything about them. He knows what happened. Obviously, it happened to him. But he knows their hurts. He knows their disappointments. He knows the struggle that they're in. And he wants to start a conversation. Basically says, What's, what are you guys so distressed about this morning? So both of them stop in mid-step and turn and look at him. This newfound traveling companion as though he had appeared from outer space. And they're going to ask, where have you been, pal? 
The one named Cleopas answered and said to Jesus, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of all the stuff that's happened there in these past days? Are you clueless, dude, is kind of the question here. Haven't you been watching Fox News? Which is fair and balanced, of course. And seen what has gone on in Jerusalem? They've been beaming directly from their correspondent from, you know, with the uh, holy city in the background and, uh, and the, big, uh, uh, the big church behind them. Jesus just shrugged his, ho- his holy shoulders and said to them, What things? With great irritation in their voice. Yes, Richard? Sorry to wrap your and I had to get going. Okay. Well, you have a good day. Is that Julie? Okay. We'll see you later. So he shrugs his holy shoulders, and they say to him, The things about the Nazarene. Okay, Richard, thank you. So the two men, they exchange glances with one another. They roll their eyes. How could this guy have missed it? And they begin to explain the events. You know the Nazarene. That's the one that they hoped would be the Messiah. But by saying this, calling him the Nazarene, they diminish him. You know that man from the city of Nazareth that we followed? But he's dead now. And they go on to explain, We believed him to be a prophet, because he was mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people. Notice something very important here. They call him, they refer to him as a prophet. He is a Nazarene and just a prophet. Why do they think this? Because he's dead, obviously. They could not believe or would not believe that he was resurrected. He was just a man from the city of Nazareth. A great prophet, for sure. We know he was a great prophet. He did some great things because he was mighty in word and deed. All of this implies that Jesus was just a man like the other prophets who had come before him. Isaiah and Ezekiel and John the baptizer, or even Moses. But they could not believe in the deity of Christ. How could they? After all, they had watched him being nailed to the cross and taken by our chief priests and rulers who delivered him up to the sentence of death by crucifying him. I would imagine that Cleopas was speaking and then became a little choked up as he tried to get these words out. His emotion must have been flowing through him. And so he stops for a moment, and he tries to collect his thoughts. He had a very personal stake in all this. After all, he was a follower of Jesus. But now, both of these men view Jesus as just a prophet, just a man, a great man maybe, perhaps. But he was not the person of deity. All of their hopes and dreams for the future that they had invested in Christ were smashed, gone, done away with. Verse 21, But we were hoping that it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. You can hear the despair, the hopelessness in Cleopas' voice. It's as almost as though a deep depression has overcome him since it's the third day 
since his crucifixion. We all know that three days was the Jewish indicator that someone was really dead, truly dead, and no hope. They had believed, though, that Jesus would rescue Israel, but now that dream was gone. Uh, the, the Greek word that's used there for redeem or rescue is the term luitro, and it's translated redeemed three times in the New Testament. You can find it in Titus. You can find it in First Peter as being redeemed, but it actually means to set free, rescue, or redeem. The word's rooted in the Exodus event. It's used in the um, Greek translation of the Bible over 90 times in the New Testament. And uh, because of the Exodus event, it actually means to be rescued from bondage. The term, the term was used of paying a ransom to gain the, the freedom of a slave held in captivity. The picture here, really, by this word is this. Israel was held in captivity for 400 years until God miraculously rescues them through the exodus. Similarly, Cleopas expected God to rescue the Jewish people from the Romans through the promised Messiah. Instead, this one whom they had invested all their hope in was dead, died, finito, gone. You know, we often see in others what we want to see. And I believe these two men, like many disciples, saw in Jesus what they wanted to see. They saw him as the one who would free them from Roman captivity rather than the one who would redeem them from sin. They had dreamed of the day when the Messiah would set Israel free from her oppressor, but now that dream was crushed. What really impressed these two men about Jesus, though, was the things that he did, his words and his deeds. Cleopas describes them as being mighty. He'd seen the power of God manifested in Jesus Christ, and yet he was murdered by their own religious rulers. I find that interesting here that he doesn't blame the Romans for Jesus' death, but blames their own chief priests and rulers. He blames them because they forced the hand of the Roman procurator to crucify Jesus. It was at this very moment that I believe a, probably a smile came across Cleopas's lips as he said, but some women among us, oh, you know those women, they amazed us. When they were at the tomb early that morning, they didn't find his body and they came home to us saying that they'd seen a vision of angels. Can you believe it? Angels. No body, but they did see angels. These women, they like to tell wild stories about seeing heavenly beings. I really think they're just a little bit daft. What they need is a real dose of reality. No more false hopes in a dead man. But they were adamant. They said they saw two angels who had said that Jesus was alive. You know, I think they're a little bit wacky. So we questioned them. We asked him, and they admitted that they never saw the Lord himself. So what are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to think? Maybe they were just hoping to see Jesus, and so they saw what they hoped for, 
And then they came and told us this tale to cover up their embarrassment. We don't know. So we got up that morning and we went down to the tomb for ourselves and to see what was there. We found no stone in front of it. We found no Roman guards. And when we went into the tomb, we found it exactly as the women had said. But none of us saw Jesus or any angels. So I guess the women got it partly right. The tomb was empty. But it's really hard to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Their traveling companion, Jesus, sensed their mixture of disappointment, doubt, and confusion, and he decided it was, a, it was time to enlighten their darkened minds. So in verse 25, Jesus scolds them for their lack of discernment and understanding. He says to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Did I ever tell you how much I hate it when a teacher will say to someone in a class setting, oh, that was a really good question. Did you ever have teachers do that? I had one teacher would say that almost every time a question was asked. Oh, that's really a good question. You know, that's management 101 technique to get people on your side, but really, some people ask Really stupid questions. That's the truth. And telling them that they're asking a really good question is just pure manipulation. You know? And some people fall for that. They like being manipulated. But not Jesus. He doesn't say to Cleopas and his companion, Oh, those are really good insights. That's really a good question. He says to them, You fools! How would that go over in class? Just like Paul. Remember when Paul speaks to the Galatians? He doesn't butter them up and say, oh, you guys are asking some really good questions. Now let me straighten you out. He says, you foolish Galatians. Think that gets their attention? You know, we live in a politically correct world today. People don't want their little emotions hurt. They, they, they don't want to be made to feel foolish in any way. The Bible's not that way. Bible just lays it out just as it is. And to not believe the prophets is foolish, says Jesus. You know, recently, I find most Americans to be foolish. They have bought into some really wild stuff. You can keep your doctor, period. You can keep your insurance, Period. Oh, I'll close Guantanamo Bay, my first act as my administration. But my favorite is, Ebola will never come here to our shores. No, we've got protocols in place. You actually believe the garbage coming out of Washington, D.C.? Oh, you fools is what I want to say. Down in Houston, they're telling... Preachers, they got to turn in their sermons to the mayor. Did you read about that? You know, you give a little power to people and they go insane with it. So pastors all across the United States are going to mail their sermons to the mayor of Houston this week. I hope they like being inundated by about 200,000 sermons and envelopes because that's what's going to happen. 
Whatever happened to the separation of church and state? You see, these two guys had all the evidence they needed to know the truth. It was in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets spoke the truth about what God would do. But they refused to believe the truth. You know, people in our culture refuse to believe the truth. I heard one of those talking heads on Fox News saying, Oh, I'm conservative economically. I'm conservative here. I'm conservative there. But I believe in gay marriage. You fool! God speaks to you clearly about this issue. Like many folks in mainline and liberal churches who, today who refuse to believe the truth about Christ. They believe a lot of stuff, but not the Bible. They believe in peace. Peace be, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. But they don't believe in the Prince of Peace. He's just a great teacher. You see, Jesus says to these guys, you had the evidence with you to believe. Why didn't you believe? Some people grew up in a certain denomination in which the head figure declared Mary to be sinless. It's not in the Bible. Why do you believe that? We believe all sorts of things without evidence. We hold on to myths and fairy tales or things that we have been taught as being true. There's a whole group of people who run around believing that the King James Bible is the inspired word of God because of some myth. The federal government couldn't even give a group of people a bunch of drugs and to believe something like that. It's just nonsense and goes against all the evidence in the world. Is the King James Bible a good version? Yeah, but it's not inspired by the word of God. Only the original autographs were. We will believe nonsense, Jesus says. Why didn't you just believe my word? Why won't people just believe the word of God? It's all the evidence we need to know him and to experience him and enjoy the abundant life. Last week I showed you a clip from The Good Wife. I'm not going to show it again, but you'll remember the daughter was hailed by her legal, her lawyer mother as being really smart. Why? Because she didn't believe what the Bible said. That's what our culture teaches today. You're really smart if you don't believe what the Bible literally says. Well, I'm afraid Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says you're smart if you believe exactly what the Bible teaches. But today we're falling into the satanic trap because people in public schools, because public officials, because though the intelligentsia of our nation tells you that it's foolish to believe in the inspiration and the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible. They're the fools! They're brainwashing our children in Darwinism, which teaches that man has no future. 
that man is the problem, that we're just the product of chance. The Bible tells us that we are the special creation of God. We are made in his image. Now it's up to you. Who do you want to believe? The prophets of old or the intelligentsia that surrounds us that's on the way to hell because they're fools. What's he so worked up about? They keep telling us that Islam is the religion of peace. How much evidence do they need? How many thousands of pictures do they need of people being crucified, their heads cut off, their hands cut off, their genitals mutilated before they recognize it's not a religion of peace. It's a religion of hate. I'm sick to death of their lies. Are you not? When are we as a people going to stand up and say we're sick of the lies? They're fools and they're leading us down the pathway to destruction. It's coming. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I can read the events that are happening. Now, you probably might not have seen the pictures. You have to will yourself to go see the pictures. You have to go to the internet and look it up. Because they won't tell you. They won't show it to you. They won't. But if you go there, you'll find it. Hundreds. Last week, in the city that's on the border of Turkey, they crucified and chopped off the heads of 1,500 Kurds. You won't find it. They won't tell you in the press, but that's what happened. 1,500. That, to me, is a crime against humanity. And what are we doing? We're holding our hands behind our back instead of unleashing the power of the U.S. military like we should. Don't be a fool, says Jesus. It's all there in the Bible. Recently, a movie came out, Left Behind. Now, I'm not a big fan of those kind of movies. But it basically gets the story right from Scripture. And I went and saw the movie, and then I went and read the reviews online. None of this is in my text, so you'll just have to bear with it. You should have read the articles online about it, the editorials. Christian fantasy, Christian make-believe. Why don't they just read the Bible and take it literally, what it says? The end is coming. Jesus is going to return. All hell is going to be released on earth. But thank goodness we won't be here to experience it. So the Lord takes these guys back. He says, you fools, don't you know what it says in the prophets? Let's go back. Let me remind you of what it says. And he first probably turns to Genesis 3.15, which is the promise, first promise of God to send a redeemer, a rescuer, if you will. This is called the Proto-Evangelum by theologians. The Lord tells us that he will crush the head of Satan and the heel of the promised one will be bruised. Then he probably moved on to another dispensation, which I believe in, and lingered there on Genesis 22 when Abraham offered up Isaac, not Ishmael, 
as Islam teaches, offered up Isaac as a substitute. He was willing to offer up his one and only son to God on an altar, just as the father will do with his son. Jesus surely would have then stopped and focused on the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. He would have shown how the Levitical sacrifices, the tabernacle ceremonies, and the day of atonement, the serpent of the wilderness, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 all point to him. You see, the key to understanding the Old Testament as Jesus is teaching these two men is by seeing him in it as the fulfillment of all that was said and done. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The prophets of old predicted predicted him, wrote about him, to every last detail of his life. We need simply to see it and believe it. Jesus says it was necessary in verse 26 for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory. And that's what these Jews refused to see. They wanted, this, they wanted the Messiah who would come, the conquering king who would ride in on his white stallion and save them from the oppressors. But it always was intended that Christ would suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Jesus says to Cleopas, man, you didn't do your homework. You didn't follow the syllabus. There ain't no shortcuts to an A in this class, kid. You got to go back and look at Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Don't forget Hosea. Because all of those tell you who I am and predict what you've just seen these past three days. In verse 20, he begins begins with Moses and with all the prophets, and he explains to them the things concerning of himself in the scriptures. The Greek word that's translated here in English as explained is the same word from which we get our English term hermeneutics. That is the study of the Bible. Hermeneutics is the study of the Bible. He gave them a class on hermeneutics. Would you have liked to have been there for that class? So the Lord starts with Genesis and then works his way all the way through Malachi. You see, Jesus is the main theme of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. He is the Alpha, the beginning, and the end, the Omega, and... He is in Genesis just as he is in Revelation. So he's teaching them all this, and these guys have no clue who the teacher is. You ever had a teacher like that? I've never had one. I always looked up the name of the teacher before I took a class, didn't you? And find out from other people, oh, what, did you th- what, did, what, did, what, did, what do you think of, uh, 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 of Mr. Luke here? Is he a good teacher? What about Mr. John? Uh, don't take him, he's really boring. They don't know who this teacher is. Who is this guy? He's got to be rolling through their heads, don't you think? Wow, he's brilliant. All the while, the Lord remains hidden behind this cloak of anonymity. And all they knew was that the Bible was becoming an open book to them. They were realizing stuff they'd never known before. 
Look at verse 28. And as they approached the village which they were going, Emmaus, Jesus acted if he was, as if he would go on farther. He was going to leave them. But the two disciples are thinking, hey man, this conversation is really interesting. We don't want it to end here. And they urged him, stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is nearly over. So, he went in to stay with them. I believe Jesus' intent was to keep on going to the next village, but these two men invited him to stay. And share the evening meal. Get tucked into a nice warm spot so that no robbers get you on the road to wherever you're going. It was getting late. Everybody was hungry, and it was getting dark. So they offered him the place to stay, and he agreed. But the real reason is they wanted to hear more of what he would have to say about the scriptures. You see, they didn't really realize that spiritual hunger was their greater need than physical hunger. In the words of verse 29, you can almost grasp the sense of excitement when the Lord agrees to stay with them. Yeah, he's staying. All right. Ooh, what are we going to feed him? Can you imagine the conversation in the kitchen? You know, Cleopas, I always wanted to ask the teacher at the synagogue this question about Abraham. I'm going to ask our guest. I bet you he knows the answer. I'm sure he knows the answer. So I'm going to ask him right now. By the way, would you mind getting out the bread and wine for the table for dinner while I go in and ask him? He's looking pretty anxious. So the three men sit down together, and they're about to enjoy the evening meal, and it came about when he was reclined at the table with them. He took the bread, he blessed it, he he prayed, and began to break it, and he began giving it to them. It's kind of strange, because Jesus takes over the host, or the head of the family's responsibilities. He begins to distribute the food, but before he did that, he prayed. Maybe this was the habit that the Lord got into when he was on the road with his disciples, He'd pray the prayer of thanksgiving to the Father, and then he would begin dividing the food between them. All this time, you can imagine, the eyes of these two men are transfixed upon the stranger that they have met. And in verse 31, we read, Suddenly, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And immediately, he vanished from their sight. At the very moment he begins to serve them dinner, They realize who he is. Their eyes are open, says the text. They recognized him as the risen Jesus. And immediately the Lord was gone. Their eyes were wide open. The real identity was revealed to them. It's kind of humorous in light of that. To look back up in the text a few verses in verse 18... And look what they asked the Lord Jesus. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that had happened these past three days? We can surely be foolish sometimes in our estimation of others, can't we? In our thinking, we understand the realities of life and of truth. The irony here is that they were the ones who were unaware. Maybe you're here this morning unaware of the truth. Maybe you haven't got a clue about really what took place back then. Maybe you're here this morning thinking, boy, another boring sermon to sit through. 
Same stories, same songs, same prayers. Plain old boring. All of us know the drill. Stand up, sit down, blah, blah, blah. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, we all know it. However, these two men on the road to Emmaus thought they knew the truth. They thought they had it all together. But the truth is they really didn't understand a thing about what had really happened. The question is, do you want to live the abundant life? Do you want to experience joy and peace in this world? Do you want to have a future and a hope? You can't do that if you remain unaware of the truth. Satisfied to believe the cultural understandings of the evangelical church. It's just the same old boring stuff from the 1800s. Some guy yells at you for 40 minutes and you sing a few old songs. If that's your understanding, then you've never had your eyes opened to the truth. These men even held Jesus up on a high standard. Oh, he's a great teacher. Yeah. He's mighty in word and deeds. He does some fantastic tricks. He's a, he might even be a prophet. But the Son of God? I don't think so. Until their eyes were open, the recognition of who Jesus is is the result of that. The conviction of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives opens our eyes to the truth. So let me ask you, have you had one of those aha moments where you truly understand what the scriptures is teaching about Jesus from beginning to end? Have you had that aha moment when the Holy Spirit convicted of your heart, your heart of your need? That you were a sinner separated from a holy God? Not by the things that you do, but because you are a natural man. That you have a sin nature. And that the only answer, the only hope that you have is placing your faith and trust in Jesus. If that's true, then your eyes need to be open to the truth this morning. To see the real Jesus not some phony Jesus made up by some false teacher. Not some plastic or stone icon of Jesus that people bow down to. Maybe you've been closed off to the things of God. Maybe you've not listened in the past or seen and believed. Maybe you were raised in a quasi-Christian home or a religious home which caused you to be inoculated from the truth of Scripture rather than infected by it. You might have even memorized the Apostle Creed or the Westminster Confession or the Long and Short Confession. Maybe you even memorized Bible passages at camp, but you've never fully understood the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in your place. Maybe you're not aware of who Jesus is. God of very God. The man who was God, who died for your sin, and not only your sin, but the sin of the whole world. What does that mean to you? Maybe you're unaware. 
It will mean nothing to you until your eyes are open. These two men had been steeped in Judaism. They'd been inundated by the things of God, the temple, the ceremonies, the priesthood, and yet their eyes were wide open shut to the truth. But in that moment, when they began to see him break the bread, they recognized who he was. In that very act, they saw him as the sovereign God of the universe. And now they were able to see truly who he is. Have you had that aha moment where you recognize him as the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, the lamb of God, the lion of Judah, the bright and morning star, the alpha and the omega, the captain of the hosts, the son of God, the son of man, Emmanuel, God with us, the good shepherd, the expressed image of the father, the Christ, Jehovah, the only one, holy one, I should say, of Israel, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords, the seed of David, the son of the Most High God, the teacher, the master, the wonderful counselor, the wonderful mighty God, the word that became flesh, our high priest, the open door, the only way, the chief cornerstone, the carpenter's son, the first Adam, the last Adam, the desire of nations, the consolation of Israel and the Holy One of God, the one who can rescue you from sin. Are you seeing Jesus in a new light this morning? Do you really get it? Have you had that aha moment that he is the substitutionary offering for your sin? I trust that you have. He is not only the one who died to deliver us, to rescue us from sin, death, and the grave, but he's not only yours, despite what the reformers say, he's the savior of the whole world. And in verse 32, we see the reaction of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. After their eyes were opened and they said to one another, weren't our hearts burning within us? While he was speaking on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us. You see, that's the proper response to the word of God is to have your heart burn with conviction that it's true. The problem is churches are filled with people whose hearts don't burn with conviction. They're skeptical about what the Bible teaches. But when the word is explained with power, when the word is explained with heart power, the heart burns with biblical explanation just as it did for these two men. And it causes you to make a choice. You either respond to that burning conviction within your heart, brought about by the Holy Spirit, or you reject it. You believe it, or you reject it. You see, there's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally as your savior and friend. Many people know about Jesus, but they lack that personal, intimate knowledge and relationship with him. Recognition begins with an aha moment, a personal culpability before a holy God. Admitting that you are a sinner and without hope. As a sinner, you are lost and separated from God. You cannot save yourself. There's a huge gulf that exists between the two of you. God has found you wanting and will judge you based 
upon who you are as the natural man and the sin that you've committed. The penalty for sin is death. And there's only one hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ, because he was your scapegoat. He was your substitute. He took your punishment on Calvary. He was the perfect sacrifice. Having never sinned in his own life, he could die for our sins as the Lamb of God and take upon him the chastisement of the world. As Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 1, God showed us, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't want you to reclaim your life, turn over a new leaf, or do anything. Just trust in him. Christ died to save sinners. World War II was a long and protracted war between bitter enemies. Two great nations, the Empire of Japan and the United States of America. Following the war, Japanese soldiers were repatriated to their families in Japan. However, a number of them, who had not heard that the war was over, remained hidden hidden behind in the jungles of isolated islands in the Pacific. These Japanese soldiers continued to live as as though the war raged on. They wore tattered uniforms, carried rusting rifles, and subsisted on local fruits and vegetables. The men either did not hear or did not believe that the war had ended. So they continued living in their miserable conditions. All the while, they could have been back home in the comfort and the security of their homelands and with their families. The truth is, many people live that way today in the spiritual realm. There's been peace made between God and man by the Lord Jesus Christ. The price for sin has been paid and satisfied the Father's wrath. He died in our place to pay the penalty. His sacrificial work frees us to be forgiven by God. Sadly, many people refuse to embrace the good news. They choose to continue to live as spiritual fugitives. They deny the power of Christ to change their lives. So how about you? Are you unaware of what Jesus has done for you? Are you still living in spiritual exile? Have you not heard of his wonderful grace or have you refused it? The Lord is offering you once again an opportunity to receive his forgiveness, to receive the free gift of eternal life. Place your faith and trust in him and him alone. For he has risen from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Please, I beg of you, don't wait. Trust him today. Notice the right response that these two men made on the road to Emmaus. The right response to Jesus in verse 33. And they arose that very hour. They didn't wait for another minute to think about it, to contemplate it. And they rose up from their seats and they returned to Jerusalem and they found there gathered the 11 disciples and those who were with them. You see, these men had found the truth. It burned within their hearts, and they had to share their experience. No one in Emmaus would understand it because they hadn't been in the, in the city that day, so they had to hurriedly go back and give testimony of God's work in their lives to those in the upper room on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And who was there? Well, we read here in verse 33 that it was the 11 and others. So we know that these two disciples are not members of the 
inner group of Jesus. They are completely different. And they go to the upper room, and before they can utter a word, someone yells out to them, The Lord is really risen! And he's appeared to Simon Peter. Before they even give back to give their wonderful testimony, they get cut off at the knees. Somebody's already told us. Simon Peter saw the Lord. And many in the room still didn't believe. I know this because Mark chapter 16, verses 12 and 13 say this. And after that, he appeared in a different form. Oh, I'm sorry. It says that, uh, that the two of them were, that Simon Peter's testimony was unbelieved by many of the disciples that were gathered there. So, what does all this mean to us today? What can we take out of this? Well, the first thing that we should understand is that the Lord is really risen from the dead. They began to relate their experiences, says verse 35, how he was recognized them through the breaking of bread. This wasn't just a figment of their imagination. They had really experienced it. These guys were not a bunch of religious zealots. They would have disbelieved Jesus' resurrection unless they had some further proof. And this stamp of approval, Peter seeing the the risen Lord, the women seeing the risen Lord, and now these two disciples seeing the risen Lord can only lead to our trust in what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. He was seen by 500 people and all these other witnesses. His grave clothes were there empty, undisturbed. We're a fool if we don't believe the truth. So why don't people believe, we might ask. Why is it that people get all this evidence and they don't believe? Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, listen carefully now. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. People reject the truth of the gospel because they're foolish and they're looking at it in natural terms rather than in spiritual terms. Yes, their eyes must be opened by the Holy Spirit, but they must have a desire and an openness to the truth before the Holy Spirit can reveal it to them. Our prayer should always be, even as believers, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold the wonders of your truth. We should come humbly to the word of God open and reflective, looking for God to speak to us through it and not denying the words of Scripture and the truth of Scripture. So let me ask you, are you listening? Are you ready for an aha moment in your life? Will you respond when God speaks to you? Or will you refuse to believe? Really, the choice is up to you. But the road you take in life will be dictated by the choices you make about the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of Scripture. We thank you for the witnesses, for the evidence. Help us to believe. Help me to believe, Lord, so that we might enjoy the abundant life you offer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.